Right. Yeah. So today we're looking at Luke 20 verses 20 to 26. And Josh is going to be unpacking that for us later to begin with. We'll just start with a discussion question. So if you um, if you saw on the WhatsApp earlier, I put a paragraph in, um, you know, as it is Valentine's Day, I thought I'd do something marginally themed. And in this paragraph is a letter from Jane to John. From that letter, it has no punctuation. And I just want to get your guys' thoughts. What do you think is going on in that letter? I have literally no idea what Jane is trying to say. <laughs> I don't know how anybody understands it. I'm happy you said that because I literally thought the same. <laughs> I read it and I was like, this makes no sense. So I've no help, I know, but same. <laughs> I don't know if this is just me, but I feel like because I'm so used to people not using grammar, I felt like it was kind of like the way that I read it. I feel like it's kind of like, do you know when somebody would send you a text or something and you can misinterpret what they said because when we text, we don't really use the same grammar as when we would write formally. And so I feel like I definitely picked up on a tone or like what she was trying to say in that sense, like the way, like if somebody was texting me that, how I would perceive it. But it's definitely not the only way you could take it, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's kind of like, as you say, there's there's kind of two main ways that you can read it, depending on how you naturally insert the grammar into it. So I'm going to now read it twice with two different phrasings and punctuation used. And you're going to see how it can clearly give two different meanings. Okay, so this is the first one. Dear John, I want a man who knows what love is all about. You are generous, kind and thoughtful. People who are not like you admit to being useless and inferior. You have ruined me for other men. I yearn for you. I have no feelings whatsoever when we're apart. I can be forever happy. Will you let me be yours, Jane? That's the first way. Now we can see from that that it's very much a, you know, that's, that's a cute letter. You know, if, if any man got that from um, their other half, I'm sure they'd be very happy. But you see, imagine if there were some punctuation mistakes in that letter. Let me, I'm just going to read it to you now. Exactly the same words, different punctuation. Dear John, I want a man who knows what love is. All about you are generous, kind, thoughtful people who are not like you. Admit to being useless and inferior. You have ruined me. For other men, I yearn. For you, I have no feelings whatsoever. When we're apart, I can be forever happy. Will you let me be? Yours, Jane. Now, as you can probably tell, that's a very different meaning to the original, possibly intended meaning of the letter. But this is where we kind of come on to the key point that I'm going to be talking about. Pretty much the only way that we would ever be able to understand what the intended meaning of this letter is if we knew the actual truth behind it, is if we knew what the actual truth behind their relationship was. You see, with this kind of punctuation thing, the only way to uncover what it's actually meaning to say is if we know what their relationship is like, is if we know what the truth behind Jane's letter is. And that's what I'm briefly going to touch on now. So this idea of truth. Nowadays, most people dislike the idea of truth. The idea of truth is something that's quite hard to swallow, or at least it is for the Western media. For example, if we take the COVID-19 vaccine, if I say that it is true that having the COVID vaccine reduces the severity of the effects that you'll get from having COVID. Okay, that's been you know proven through research. If I say that, 
It is twisted by culture, by society, as me exerting power or oppressing people who reject vaccines. You see, in the Western world today, we have this idea that anyone can believe what they want. And as long as they believe it, it's true. We have this idea of subjectivity, the rejection of the absolute. If people have a thought, it must be right because they believe in it. But you see, this doesn't sit right with the Bible because the Bible is absolute truth. The Bible is God's words written by human messengers guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, we're told in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God breathed. All scripture. That doesn't mean that some scripture isn't and that some scripture is. That means that all scripture has been directly influenced by God in a variety of ways, whether that is through the recording of his actual words. Looking back in the Old Testament, we hear him speaking um, directly to people, whether that's through the prophets who received words directly from God um, and spoke that, or whether that's in the New Testament, which are accounts of you know Jesus's life or Paul's letters that are clearly guided by the Holy Spirit. You see, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is the absolute standard of truth. It is the bar of which all things should be measured. It's the bar by which we should test our own beliefs against. It's the bar by which we should test the preachers that we listen to, our church leaders. We should test what they're saying against the word of God. And it's also the bar to which we need to conform our beliefs. You see, the Western idea of truth is that it comes from inside you. If you look hard enough, if you wake up at six, do a, a morning workout routine, if you meditate, do this, do this, do this. If you get a good job, a nice house, then you'll be able to uncover the meaning of truth inside yourself. That's the message that culture wants to tell you. But you see, the idea of absolute truth is that it has to come from outside. The absolute truth of God's word comes from the outside and shapes us. And the only way that we're going to be shaped by that truth is actually spending time in it and allowing it to shape us. It's no use reading the words unless we put them into practice. That's pretty much all I'm going to talk about now. I'm just going to hand straight over to Josh. But yeah, just this idea that God's word is the only absolute truth and it's the bar of truth to which we should measure all things um, that we kind of come across. Yes. Would somebody like to read the passage first? Paying taxes to, to Caesar, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he had said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that you do not strip it partially, but teach the way of God in, in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said they were there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Yeah, thanks, Elliot. Um, the thing I love about this passage is that it's so short, but it packed in such a poignant message at that end of it. Starting at the start, you've got verse 20, and sending spies to Jesus is just something that always blows my mind when I read this passage. Like, they really didn't like Jesus at this point. Like, they were like, hmm, 
how are we going to be able to do this so sneakily that Jesus, the son of God, might not be able to find out? Like they have tried to go as far and as wide to try to find the best way that suits them. Like with cancel culture, it what's most suiting for some people sometimes. Like with how everything's about protecting number one. They really wanted to get Jesus saying something that might be very controversial in the eyes of either the people or the Caesar. See, they wanted Jesus to speak out of turn. They wanted Jesus to have a non-Jesus moment, which was never going to happen because like, it's all about the bad maths that we always go back to. 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time. It makes awful maths, but it makes great theology. And it's a mess, but it is God's mess. So it makes sense at the end of the day. Because like, you've got all this, and they wanted Jesus to have like, stop being Jesus for a bit of time. But he couldn't, because he was 100% of the time, both 100% man and 100% God. See, Jesus always spoke from a place of love, a place of wisdom, a place of knowing what his end goal was and knowing how he was going to achieve it. Knowing God's plan for him, knowing how to live that out. See, this answer to the question, as much as anything, shows what James is getting at, where he says in chapter one, verse 19, it says he's, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. See, rushing causes stress, causes mistakes, causes things that we don't want to do. It's like if you get an answer in a test and you just skim over it and you're like, right, I'm going to write that and that's done. And then you just keep on moving. You're more likely to get it wrong. There was a moment in a test where I was going through and I was like, right, I know this question. I'm just going to do it really quickly and move on. I did really well on that test, but I dropped those marks and I look back on it. And that was the difference between a grade band. That could have taken me up to the next level. And like, I was so busy rushing that I just missed out putting, um, putting an extra decimal place for, for my answer. If we speak quickly and out of a place where we ignore where our wisdom comes from, Ignore where our strength, as Psalm 28 verse 8 says, the Lord is their strength and he is a saving defence to his anointed. Psalm 37 verse 39, but the salvation of the light righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in, uh, in time of trouble. Exodus 15 verse 2 says, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will extol him. And this is what we see. Our strength comes from God. Like what I usually go back to in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, it says that God's strength overcomes our weakness. That is why I will delight in my strength, in my weaknesses, in fallings, in things. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When we are open, when we are vulnerable with God, we see that we start talking at a place of just incomplete awe of him, incomplete love for what God is doing for us. So, yeah, it's like salty conversations are the key to this what Ben says so many times about having a conversation where we are salt of the earth, like it says in Luke 14 verse 30, we should have conversations where we are like salt, where when salt becomes unsalty, what use is it for? We're always talking about planting the seeds in conversation. Like how Tom had that moment when he was at the, at the shop the other day wearing his pink OBY hoodie and somebody asked him what it was about. That's a salty conversation. Like it's all about showing love and, how do we do that when we just take the instant, instant answer? Like when we pray, when we speak slowly, we're taking time to find out the most loving things to say. Being a vessel for God rather than talking out of selfish ambition, 
like we should strive to follow the love of God in everything we do. Jesus didn't give the instant answer here. Why should we give the instant answer in any question that we have? If someone asks, why do you believe in God? Because I do isn't really a sufficient answer for their question. See, this is a really smooth segue onto verse 22. See, this is a passage which is all built around this tough question. Like, this is the Ron Seal edition of tough questions. It does exactly what it says on the tin. See, there's like, there's no instant right answer that Jesus could give. Like, this is like, I'm going to go back to the sport uh, references that I used to always make. It's like if you came up to me as a Welshman and I ask you, who are the starting wingers for the Lions tour that's coming up in rugby? You see, if you say Johnny May and Josh van der Moer, then you've ignored Louis Rees Samet and George North for me, which would really offend me as a Welshman because I love those two men. They are brilliant players. But like, if they actually do say them, then I'm thinking you're just saying that to like be nice to me and... Yeah, obviously, they're not both going to be the starting wingers. But, like, you were wrong whatever simple answer you give to that question. Just like Jesus would have been wrong if he gave the, like, either of the two multiple choice questions that he gave. Like, the best questions, the most tough questions, bring out the best answers. See, it's why a 25 mark question exam gets you 25 marks rather than a two mark question getting you 25 marks. It's about the effort put in. It's about the result that comes out of it. I'm sure you write a lot more for a 25 marker than you would for a two marker. Because, I mean, if you're writing the amount for a two marker than a 25 marker, then you're probably not getting many marks here. But as we see in verse 21, Jesus never does favoritism. Like, he loves equally, as we see in James 2, verses 1 to 13, it warns against favoritism because we're all called to love as God has loved us. This means not having a favourite. We're called to love as God has loved us. This does mean not having favourites. See, this means even when we're wronged, we love. Even when it's tough, we love. Even when it hurts, we love. Because Jesus, even when we wrong him, he loves even when it was tough, he loves. Even when it, caught, when it was him dying on a cross, involving his death, involving pain that nobody could possibly imagine, he loved. He loved us, showing no favoritism. Like it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world. He doesn't put any brackets around here being like, oh yeah, but I love people who are over seven foot. He doesn't put any brackets to say, nah, I don't love you as much or I don't love you as much. And it was a massive point in when I was sat there at a Q&A at Spring Harvest with uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. They were talking about how do we treat things that we see in the world that we don't like? You've still got to love them the same as you love your best mate, because it's the fact that Jesus calls us to love because we are all loved by him the same. He died for all of us. There's not an exception in that. See, this question has been twisted to try to get Jesus to show favour to them. If he chose telling them to pay taxes, he shows favouritism to Caesar and the population stops liking. See, at this point, only the teachers of the law were trying to get him, get him arrested. They were the only people that didn't like him because he was teaching the undisputed word of God that wasn't really helping them out much they still wanted to get their pay they still wanted to get all of their way in what they were doing but if he chooses the population 
and says, nah, don't pay your taxes. It's fine. Caesar doesn't need the money. He goes against Caesar and he will badly offend Caesar. And then they teach the law and just hand him over to the governors. See, this is a multiple choice question where there's a hidden mystery box on it. That is the only right answer. See, this is my favorite part of this passage because Jesus just completely stumps him. He's just reversing the question straight back at them. And he goes and says, look at Denarius, what's on it? By just reversing this question, reversing questions uh, when asked about our faith is a simple thing to do, but it's not something we do very often. And it sometimes comes when we are slower to speak, when we do take time to think about it. See, if we say, you know what, where does this question comes from when somebody asks why, why we believe in Jesus? It sees into their question. It gets us a view into the person. We begin to understand them and know how to love them best. Know how that person ticks. Know what things that person has struggled with. Knowing what things that that person really would like help with at the moment. See, and we begin to see where we can best show God's love. The answer he gives is quite simply the best answer he could have given. See, Show me Caesar's face on the coin as in money. And what does Jesus mean by this? Because like, he's saying that that is Caesar's stuff because it has his face on it. Where does that put us? Where does that put us in 21st century? Why is this passage so important? See, if coins are stamped with Caesar's face, now they're stamped with the queen's head and everything. If you look at yourself, how are we stamped? We are stamped in the image of God. We are designed in God's love, designed in his image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. That's Genesis 1 verse 27. All of us have been designed exactly what God has a plan for us. God's plan is specific for you, unique so much that you are the one person with that exact plan. He's designed a path that is for each and every one of you. Yeah, it might cross over with other people at bits. Yeah, you might walk a bit with somebody and then you'll see that God's plan for them might be something different. But he's designed it for each and every one of you. He's hand laid the bricks out of, of the path for your life. He's given you gifts and he's given everything we need for that plan that he's given to us. See, it's as my good pal Drake always says, it's God's plan. God's plan is beyond what we can imagine. It's beyond what we can comprehend at the moment, but it is good. And like when we continue to trust God in that, continue to lean on him, continue to seek him in in these things that we do, by just coming along to a Bible study like this, or just waking up and reading a couple of verses, even if it's the same two verses every morning, you're connecting with him. You're making that promise. Hey God, I'm here this morning. Let's go. This isn't going to be easy, but we've got this together. See, as it says in Matthew verses 7, 7 to 8, ask, seek, knock. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. God might close some doors sometimes, but others will open. That's certainly something I've seen at the moment with something that happened during the week. See, God will shut some doors. God will say, you know what, I'm just going to be brutal at the moment. I'm going to be like, maybe this wasn't for you. And then God shows us another way because we are stamped in God's image. That coin might come out of production and it might go through so many hands in its lifetime and it will go and do its complete job as a coin. 
we have that same thing out of production of God's image. And we just go along our plan. We might go through the hands of many different retailers. We might find that, you know what, my duty was to do this for a certain amount of time. And then you do that. And then God's like, time to hop off the train, buddy. We're going to go do this. See, when we ask for God to reveal himself to us, he wants to reveal himself to us. That might not always be the way that we wanted him to. That might be like God saying, you know what? I don't want you to do this. The most best thing that you could possibly enjoy right now. I want you to take the narrow door. I want you to take the tough road because that will bring so much joy to you when you look back at it. Like it says in Hebrews 12 verses one to three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who, who endured such opposition from sinners, that you will not grow weary in these heart. Jesus went through tough times. Jesus was completely the likeness of God because he was 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time. We are stamped in the likeness of God. It's never going to be a completely flat path or a completely downhill ride. There's going to be lumps. There's going to be bumps. There's going to be a massive mountain in your way sometimes. But God goes with you through it all. He sees your path because he planned it out. Trials and temptations take joy in them, as it says in James 1, because it, it helps build our faith, it helps build us through the struggles of life. See, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses, verses 11, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And once again, as my good pal Drake says, it's God's plan. God is in control. God is there. God is at the centre of it all. God's strength is pulling us through. Like, we are designed in his image. We're given a purpose through him. We have that guide. We have that centre. We see that Jesus lived out God's plan start to finish. Dying for our sins, taking all our shame on the cross. And then coming back three days later. Triumphing over death. Triumphing over sin. Triumphing over Satan. Triumphing over evil. Triumphing over temptation. Triumphing over trials. Triumphing over everything that you come to face in your life that you struggle with. Jesus has conquered that. I was reading something the other week and it said, how could I believe in a God that hasn't experienced pain? That's why we know that God goes with us through these low points. Because we see that he experienced pain in its most brutal form on the cross and then rose again. He experienced that pain, but he rose above it. Of course, it took time. It shows that our struggles are going to take time for us to rise above them. Our God isn't the God of the finger click, quick fix, as it is in Joshua. Joshua has to walk around the city of Jericho so many times before the walls eventually fall. Imagine if he just walked up to it and was like, God, I don't really want to do the walking. Can you just make the walls fall now? And God just did it. God isn't about making our lives so perfectly simple because that takes away the point of trusting him. If we're trusting him and it's just going to be sunflower, rainbows and whatever fun you want to have then that's so easy. But 
trusting God in the hard times, trusting God when things start going wrong is so difficult. But God promises that he's with us through it all. Jesus, even when avoided giving the normal answers, he continues to hold up the laws, which we see him do all the way to the cross. He says he doesn't come to destroy the laws, but to bring fulfillment to them. He doesn't come to say, you know what? You don't like the Ten Commandments. That's all right. We're just going to do this a different way now. He says, these are still a massive part, but love others. I'm going to forgive your sins on the cross. But that doesn't mean that it's easy now. See, Matthew 19 verses 20, verse 24 says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. God doesn't call us to be rich and keep all our money. God doesn't hate money. He just hates it when we use money to worship money. See, giving our lives to God is just saying that we trust him, but trusting him, him and living out his plan. Like using money to further his kingdom, he wants to use us to further his kingdom as well. See, acting on that trust is so massively essential for what we do. James chapter 2 verses 18 to 24 says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe as there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credit to him as righteous and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is called righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. See, trusting in God's plan is one thing. Living it out is a whole different ball game. Because like being like, yo, Don, your plan is really cool, but I want to do this right now. Like that's not what we're called to do. We're called to even when the thing that we're looking at is like really difficult. Like when you're sat there and you're like, your teacher gives you an exam question in a lesson. And you're like, this looks really tough. I could ignore it and possibly get in a tiny bit of trouble, but it would all be fine. That's just the really easy option. That's the cop-out way. That's what having faith but not acting on our faith is. That's what saying we're a Christian to use that to get out of different situations. That's what saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to go to heaven. But yeah, on this earth, I'm just going to drink booze, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that. See, when we choose to go along with that, like that is us abusing our faith. That is us displaying exactly what the teachers of the law explain here in the fact that the law then, the teachers of the law, they wanted it their way. They wanted it to be easy. They wanted to tell people what they wanted to tell people rather than the unfiltered word of God, which is what Ben said. The word of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. That's Psalm 19 and is an amazing psalm if you have time to go back to it later and it's probably one of my recommendations for if you just re- want to read a psalm when you wake up in the morning the lord of the lord is perfect refreshing the soul the statues of the lord are trustworthy making wiser simple the precepts of the lord are right giving joy to the heart the commands of the lord are radiant giving light to the eyes the fear of the lord is pure enduring forever the decrees of the lord are firm and all of them are right yes. god's word is perfect god's word is so amazingly perfect that we are never going to be able to fully understand it just like we're never going to fully see what love is on earth 
because we weren't there when we saw Jesus die and then rise again. Just like we're never going to be able to fully understand that we can only get a piece of it, which is what we see through things like this. See, Jesus standard them. Living out God's plan wasn't easy, but Jesus probably here, the quote was probably intended to quieten them a bit because he saw through their duplicity and rather than calling them out for it, he stumps them. He gives them more questions than answers. He makes them interested in what Jesus has to say. He turns what was possibly a way for people to try to kill him and instead turns it into a way to further share God's love, which is amazing. It leaves them to have to think about it all. They don't completely understand what Jesus meant. And I probably don't, and I probably haven't uncovered it for completely for you guys tonight. But we're never going to have all the answers. So we're just going to have to continue to ask the difficult questions. Like who you'd have at the wings for the upcoming Lions tour. We've got to continue to search for the answers that, you know, might be difficult, might be not what is suiting for us, might not be what is comfortable. Because Martin Luther King said something brilliant. And this was about a year before he was assassinated. He said, the ultimate standing of a man is not what they do in times of ease, in times of use, in t- like when stuff is easy, that's not what truly makes a man. But when it is neither political, when it is neither easy, when it is neither dot, 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 I can't remember the full quote, but in times of trouble where a man stands, that is where there, that is where the true mark of a man is. And that goes to everybody. The true mark of our trusting in God's plan is how we live it out. Rather than just saying that, you know what, I trust in God's plan. Is continue to search for the difficult questions. Knowing that we might not find the answer, but continuing to love as he has loved us. Search for God in ways that we didn't possibly before. And ask those difficult questions. So yeah. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. Yeah, so I've got the small groups ready, but I just want to add a little bit, uh, a little bit to what Josh has said, just for five minutes or so. So in the passage, the kind of the verse that this all hangs on is verse 25. Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Like Josh has already said, you know, we are made in the image of God. We are created in God's image. And the impact of that that should have on our lives should be how we live it out in the day to day. You see, a great book which encapsulates this is the book of Zephaniah. You see, Zephaniah was talking to Judah, who had outwardly repented of their sin, who had turned back to God outwardly, but in reality were still pursuing all their paganistic rituals, all their sinful way of life. They just lived with an outward appearance of holiness and cleanliness, much like the teachers of the law. It's essential that how we are on the inside is how we are on the outside. It's essential to be transparent with our struggles. It's essential that repentance runs deep right through to the core of our beings. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, that we are not our own. So here it reads, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, ultimately, we know an absolute truth that is going to happen is that one day God will come back. Jesus will return 
and he will judge the whole earth. He will separate us left and right. He will judge all of humanity. And there's only two options we've got here. We either die for our sins or we accept Jesus's sacrifice. But that decision has to be made before. This idea that we have a responsibility to live for God every single day. We've been bought at a price to glorify God in our bodies. Give to God what is God. You see, Lent's coming up in a couple of days. And I think it's a really great time to make space for God, to give something up, to make space to spend time with him, to make space to read your Bible, but not just read your Bible, but read your Bible and reflect on it. James tells us that if you just li- like read the word of God, but don't do it, you're just deceiving yourself. Because I myself, I find it so easy often just to, to read, you know, do the daily Bibles plan, read a bit of the Bible and then just go and just scroll through social media, go watch TV, do something else. But I feel like there's this kind of urgency that we need to have to want to grow our relationship with God. You know, Peter tells us in one of his letters that we should make every effort to add to our faith, to grow and develop it. And through that, you know, we'll be giving to God what is God's. We'll be giving him our time. We'll be giving him ourselves. And a great way to do that is by cutting certain things out. And that's that's what I just challenge you with going away from, from this evening. What things are there that you could cut out? What things are there that might be pulling you away from God? What things might be barriers from you spending more time with him? And that's all I'm going to talk about. And we're now going to go off into some small groups.